Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Stories of Gary Lineker, Alan Smith, Romario, Brolin, Ravelli, Henrik Larsson. We've decided to stay traditional because following part one is part two. This is still the big interview with Graham Hunter and our guest is Jockey Bjorklund. Jockey's dry, witty, funny, but he's a very good witness to what's been going on in European football since the early 90s, my era, as a journalist, not as a player. This time, I wanted to get inside Jockey's time at Valencia, where he played with copious legends. Think about that team. Piojo Lopez, Angloma, Carboni, Canizares, the emerging Albelda, Baraja, and the mighty Gaisca Mendieta. Jockey played under both Claudio Ranieri, reaching a cup final, winning it, and Hector Cooper, two extremely interesting coaches. Remember that he marched his team, certainly in the first season, all the way to the Champions League final, and Los Che reached two consecutive Champions Leagues in Paris and Milan, with two heartbreaking results. It was a trophy-winning spell for Jockey at Valencia, and he tells us how it was that he and his teammates held the voodoo sign over Barcelona and had a habit of absolutely battering Louis van Gaal's Catalan team. In this part of the big interview podcast, we'll also find out exactly how much Jockey loves cricket, and you'll learn what is all-time eleven on the cricket field is because Jockey's special enjoy the big interview I love the fact that um, you can claim that you played twice against Romario in the Champions League and he never scored against you and you won home and away against PSV Eindhoven that's the first Champions League ever played, isn't it? We got drawn into a group with the PSV, Milan, and AC Milan, and uh, Porto. Uh, had a couple of great wins against PSV, who at the time were a really good side with uh, Romario playing up front. Beat them home and away. Just a year, maybe a year before, a year after the World Cup. But the thing that I, I like is that Romario was such a 
you know, in a similar shape to Brolin, um, maybe a little smaller, but his, his, his ability to spin and turn and do crazy things should have kept a pretty young defender like you on, on your toes. But in each case, you win an Eindhoven as well, which is, tell me your experience of when he was on you or when you're shepherding him to another, just what are the tricks to try and apart from catching him on a bad day, what are the tricks to try and keep Romario quiet? No, I'm pretty sure he kept me on my toes uh, for for two times 90 minutes uh, anyway. But he was one of those players where I think if you played him, you had to concentrate. You had to concentrate for 90 minutes. And that was the key to try to prevent him uh, from scoring. Because uh, he was one of those guys uh, not really participating in the game, not uh, in open play and all of that. But all of a sudden you switched off and then he scored. He switched off again and then scored again, which he did for Brazil. Uh, if we want to mention Romario, we can mention the two goals he scored in the World Cup against us uh, in night four as well. But I think the most important thing, staying switched on. Switched on for for 90 minutes. Otherwise, uh, you, you wouldn't have uh, had a chance against Romario. Really, really good. I wouldn't say footballer, but... A really, really good goal scorer. One of the, probably the best goal scorer I've played against. Just expand on that why you would make the difference between a good footballer and a good goal scorer as refers to Romario? Not to confuse anything about Romario, is obviously a good footballer as well. I'm not meaning that, but yeah. he was a good footballer and an astonishing goal scorer. Yeah, that's the difference. In open play, you got the feel, I got him under control, he didn't touch the ball as much as other, other strikers you play against, but then every time the ball went into the box, if you weren't switched off on, he'll get there before you, and he'll toe-poke it in. That's his uh, signature finish as well. Quick quick toe-poke, uh, you're on your back foot, uh, and it's a goal. Uh, really good, really, really good goal scorer. One of the best... Uh, in the 90s in, in the world, I'd say. Out and out goal scorers, I probably never played against anyone better. It's a good, it's a good description. I understand the difference now, I do. Um, <clears throat> again, you, you put the valuation because the, the, the following season, your, your group is harder in the Champions League. In fact, your group's astonishing. In, in reality, however well Gothenburg has grown, however good a squad you've got, however athletic you are, Really, with, with the group you're given, probably, you should be on, on an exceptional season, maybe coming through second, you win it. Now, to me, what I remember about it is that those were the days when in Britain it caused hysteria that Manchester United were taken apart in Gothenburg, really, genuinely. Didn't seem to be as quick on or off the ball didn't seem to have the same mental sharpness is how it looked. I was watching it on television. I'm not a United fan. But that result still more in Britain nobody noticed that PSV got beaten twice by about the year before. But that result caused hysteria. What do you remember of the group, the process and the United experience? First of all, it's a different time, isn't it? It's before the Bosman ruling. Uh, you have to remember that uh, all the teams who played could only have three foreigners playing at the time. Not like now we can have 
more or less uh, you can pick the best players in the world and you can play them all that wasn't allowed at the time and for Swedish club we had we saw like one or two players every year from the Swedish league abroad mainly to England uh, at that in England Italy uh, if we're talking early 90s uh, So we had a strong competitive side. We had a good experience from uh, the year before. We're, when we came second in the group, we lost out to Milan twice, uh, beat the other teams. And we thought, we thought even when we saw the draw, it was a tough draw, but we thought we were in with a fighting chance. We're in with a fighting chance. We play, we know we're going to be more of a team than the other the other guys would play we know we're physically good we played in a different manner that most teams did at that time we pressed we pressed high we stood with a defense on the halfway line and tried to put the, the other team under pressure and uh, even though we lost the first game in Manchester 4-2 we thought we had a We had a half-decent performance and after that we we didn't lose a game in the Champions League. Won the group uh, and got beaten on away goals against uh, Bayern in the quarterfinals. Uh, but I think I think we could have gone even further, to be honest. Even further. And let's remember at that time we had seven or eight of the squad that played in in the World Cup 94 as well in Gothenburg and now if you look at Swedish league maybe where you have one player from the whole league who plays who plays for Sweden so it's different times if i'm going to blame anybody for you not going further and not winning the Champions League that, that year i'm going to blame obviously and you'll feel the same magnus early mark because magnus was a goal machine if people don't remember him you know he was the one that, You've just gone a little bit there. Magnus was a goal machine. Um, what is he? He gets two against Galatasaray, um, home and away. I think he gets against Barca. You beat Barca because, you know, with your humility, you went past the fact that you just brushed it off with we never got beaten again in the group. We beat Barcelona and drew in the camp now. Um, you, you wriggled your way out of talking about pumping Manchester United, which you did. Um, a game which got Blomkist a Champions League winner's medal eventually because that sealed his movie. He plays in midfield because uh, Scholes and Keane are, are, are banned against Bayern Munich in 1999. But this goal machine, Magnus Early, Mark, erupts. And it's only when you beat Bayern that he stops bloody scoring. It, it, give, give us the Early, Mark question, Mark, please. Just tell us. Great player. Great player. Uh, handyman. Uh, backup centre-half to start with. Backup central midfielder. Ended up playing number nine. For us in the Champions League, and I can't even remember why. But as you said, scored a few uh, really important goals, won six or seven titles in Sweden. He's probably played every position uh, in Gothenburg. Uh, I'm sure he even played goalie for for 45 minutes or whatever. Really good team player, and uh, I think we were maybe as surprised as the rest of Europe when he scored his goals. Um, Jockey, I'm not letting you off the hook. When you beat United, what was the key 
What did it feel like? Because you can look at the group and say, we're going to be okay here, and we, maybe we should have done better at Old Trafford. But that was a day when you just you you were as far ahead of them as the scoreline suggests, maybe further. And you must have been aware of the shockwaves that it caused. You must have been. Of course we were. Of course we were. I mean, we know we knew we were playing a good team, but we had a feel of them at Old Trafford. We talked about it before that game. What we could have done better. We knew. They were a little bit vulnerable, and then we had a. You talked about Blomqvist uh, before. We had, that's probably his breakout game. Uh, we made his whole career, uh, and we knew they were vulnerable at, uh, at the back. Um, pretty slow, good team, slow at the back. We we used it well, and I think, as you said, we we won deservedly. Pauline Scott sent off as usual towards the end of the game. <laughs> Which helped as well. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like a game in in, in Sweden because I think Paul was sent off for that '98 Glenn Hoddle team. I think he gets sent off when um, you win two one. I think Turn scores that day too, immediately after the '98 World Cup. I don't know what it was with Swedish territory and Paul, or maybe it was just a general thing. He loved a red card. Yeah, probably a general thing. I played I played with Paul in uh, in Wolverhampton, uh, and I think he got sent off when I played him uh, in Italy as well. With Vicenza against Inter. Default setting, I'd say. But really good football as well. Paulins, that's another one. That's another one who I think people nowadays get a little bit of a misconception about. Uh, Hard case for sure. Tackler, ball winner, all of that. But a really good footballer as well. And let's not forget that. But he helped us out a couple of times as well. And that's appreciated. You, you could. I think it's not stupid to make comparisons with what Keane did because Keane at his best would win the ball and drive and use the ball and score goals arriving on the edge. You might say as a pro, this guy was better or that guy was better, but they did similar things. And there was a level when Inch was at his top level when he was playing at a level that wasn't dissimilar to the impact that, that Keane had. Very similar. Similar footballers, I think... Uh... I only played against Roy, never with him, but I think Paul might even be the better footballer. Then it's all about winning and all of that, and I'm sure Roy has won a lot more than, than Paul, and in that sense is maybe the better footballer. But uh, Paul, passing, shooting, all of that, uh, 10 out of 10. I'm going to draw you down an, un, an unwelcome path again because I'm, I'm going to talk about how amazing it was when you reached Barcelona. You stopped me, and if you want to talk about the Super Cup, where you no sooner arrive, arrive at Valencia and you're, you're beating Barcelona. But when you win the Cup, I don't know if you look back. I look back at my career and I realise how mental it's been. I mean, literally mental. Little elements of Gaza here and there. Um, lots of luck. But this, you know... In 1998-99, you're at Valencia, um, you've been there a little while, but in the round of 16, when Valencia come into the cup, you're drawn in a, a local derby against Levante. You win that 3-0. In the quarterfinals, you're drawn against Barcelona. You go to the camp now, where you've previously drawn for Gutterberg, so you walk in smoking a cigar, going, lads, this is easy, don't worry. Or maybe, or maybe double snooze, I, I don't know. You win 3-2. You take them down to Mestalla, you win 4-3. Then you beat some team in the semi-final. I don't know if you can supply their name. I mean, you walk it, it's a 6-0. Is it an amateur? 
No, it's Real Madrid. And then you go to the cup final down in the Olympic Stadium, the Olympic Stadium, in a country that's never hosted the Olympics, in Sevilla. You score um, seven goals against Barcelona to knock them out, six against Real Madrid, and then you pump Atletico 3-0. Pick a moment, pick a goal, pick an opponent. Tell me about that cup run. I'd pick, uh, obviously, the semi-final. With everything I've been through as a footballer, that's that might be the most special moment. Because, uh, as you said, we beat Barcelona in the quarterfinals, home and away, in two games with a lot of goals, and then we got drawn against uh, Real Madrid. Uh, supposedly the toughest draw you can get in the semi-final, first games at Mestalla, and we beat them six 0 We four 0 up at half time, and. Uh, and that was a good Real Madrid. They, they won the Champions League the year after. It's not one of those uh, unforgettable forgettable, uh, Real Madrid teams. It's, it's a good team with Morientes, Raúl, Hierro, Redondo, what have you. Uh, and everything. It's one of those games where everything actually clicks into place from, from the get-go. Uh, the atmosphere at Mestalla was pretty decent as well because they hadn't won a title in... 20 odd years, I think, uh, craving for a bit of success. We knew we had something going, but to beat Real Madrid 6-0 in the semi-final, that's, uh, I think that's special. And I think it's very few people who can actually say that they've done it. And I'm one of them. I'm here to tell you about another podcast. Yes, we believe in biodiversity. It's from the makers of The Big Interview, and it's called Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. Every episode takes a classic sports book or outstanding piece of sports writing and examines how the writer crafted their story. This is a weekly show, and the series so far has featured documentaries on the miracle of Castel di Sangro and Andrea Perlo's autobiography, I Think, Therefore I Play. There's also interviews with writers like Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, Andy Mitten, and David Goldblatt. Here's Raf Honigstein with his brilliant piece focusing on Erling Haaland signing for Borussia Dortmund instead of fill in the blank, but we know it's Manchester United. A transfer story is essentially is a happy story. Three parties got what they wanted. Everyone thought that they had done great work and had got a great deal out of it. Dortmund were proud of their achievement of getting this guy. Haaland, I think, was really, really happy with having made this decision. I think the agent obviously wanted to show that why this was the right decision and, and why others were wrong to sort of dismiss the reasons why they went, etc. So as, as much as it is a detective work, it's not solving a murder case. You are dealing with something that is actually quite positive and that people are, to an extent, quite happy to talk about. because you're, you're behind you you have Canizares next to you you have a strange guy in Alan Roche um, it's Jockey Bjorkland Carboni and Anglam are the two full backs Mendieta who tells me and has been on this uh, as a he consistently says I wasn't a very good footballer I just worked very hard and I could run not true when we come to the final and you look at the goal he scores 
Farinos, who's underestimated but a worker, Angolo, Luis Mia, who'd been at Barcelona and at Real Madrid, uh, Claudio Lopez, who was exceptional, Goran Flyovic, who, who famously, if I'm not wrong, had encephalitis and had a brain operation to, to save his career, Juan Fran Popescu, and coached by Claudio Ranieri. So, I mean, just confirm what I'm talking about. People won't remember that you're building up to a final and that's going to be against Atleti, and everybody knows Claudio's going to Atleti. Strange, strange atmosphere. Yeah, but, but that final, after passing the quarterfinals and the finals, I think uh, you have to remember that's not the Atletico Madrid of today we played. That was a team struggling a little bit in the league. Three years on from winning the double jockey, you're talking about Molina, Jelly, Chamot, Serena, uh, Valeron, Juninho Palista, um, Aguilera, Babel, the Czech, Jordi Larden, Jose Marie. There's some Santi Solari, um, coached by Antic. No, no, I'm not saying it was a bad team. I'm not saying that, but obviously going into the final after beating Barcelona and Real Madrid, we were the favourites, uh, odds-on favourites for sure. Uh, and that's uh, it's good to win a final. That's what it's all about. So in that sense, it's the most important game. But I got big experiences of beating uh, Real Madrid in semis and uh, in Barcelona in the quarters, I must say, personally. What was the thing between that Valencia and Barcelona? Because you just relentlessly thrashed them. Louis van Gaal had Valencia as his most hated opponent of all time because you, you hit them for fours and fives and sixes and Valencia consistently... I mean, the Super Cup was just another thrashing. Barcelona, what was it that that was on the side couldn't cope with as far as your team? Tactics, I'd say. I'd say uh, Fajal, obviously, great manager. He's won a lot, but uh, when they played against us, a little bit arrogant because they knew how we were going to play and still they tried to play the same. We, we parked the bus. We parked the bus and counted every time we played against Barcelona and we had probably the quickest I'd say striker now because I was the quickest player in the league up front uh, Claudio Lopez quickest striker in the league playing against uh, Frank de Boer and uh, Abelardo on the halfway line and that's for me sir that's uh, then, then you're begging for it I think uh, but he didn't want to change because it's Barcelona and Fanchal. We're not going to adapt to whoever we play. We're going to play the same. And it just suited us perfectly. Scored three, as you said, scored three, four goals against them every time we played them. And they kept on playing the same. And they had a decent side. In that quarterfinal, I think they had uh, Rivaldo, Kleibert and Figo up front. Uh, top three they're, they're a good team but uh, I think we beat them on uh, tactics we're the more skillful manager you know we're going to wrap up with three things uh, Jockey not that I want to but you have to have your life back if you have regrets not about season two when you go to the cha- when your club goes to the Champions League final and I'm not certain if you were fully fit in the remainder of the second season but in the first season you play a great deal in a Champions League side where you know, going through to that final, I think that you can be regarded 
maybe his favourites against Real Madrid because during the season you've been better than them, they've been very poor. They've changed coach, they've clung on, Vicente de Bosque's gone three at the back. It's, it's worked, but they've had a dreadful domestic season. Dreadful. And then, you know, in the final, you've gone through beating Rangers. Um, a couple of games against PSV Eindhoven again, you deal with Bayern Munich, two 1-1 one, one draws. So you make it as far as the Lazio game, and then from that reason, I guess it must be one of the regrets that for whatever, I don't know what Cooper's decision is, you're pretty much a, a change player, or a, a, a bench player. I don't know why that happened, but from your perspective or the club's perspective, what are the great regrets about a season where after beating Leeds you end up in Paris against Fulmadid? And, and frankly, I'm not saying this because you weren't in the team and I can be honest, I was there, Valencia didn't turn up, didn't turn up in the final. Over, over that season, when you're as close as you're probably going to be to a Champions League medal, what are the things you'd pick out and, and regret or change if you could? No, first of all, I play myself, uh, just for reason of playing in the final. I'm just joking. Uh, I think the problem is, as you said, we thought we went into the finals as favourites against Real Madrid. They struggled, uh, they struggled in the league. We went in as favourites. They struggled in the league. We had a run. I think we won like the last eight games in the league. We hammered uh, Lazio 5-2 at home in the quarterfinals. We hammered Barcelona 4-1 at home as well in the semis. And we came in on a high against a struggling Real Madrid team. Not uh, thinking about experience in in big cup finals, to be honest. And uh, uh, if you sum up those 90 minutes in Paris, it's only one team on the pitch, and that's uh, Real Madrid, unfortunately. Beat us fair and square. They were hungrier than us. Sounds very stupid when you play Real Madrid in, in a European Cup final, but they were, because they knew they had underperformed the whole, the whole year. We, on the other hand... Uh, we're a little bit arrogant, I think. I think we thought we were going to win this game all by ourselves because uh, we had great form and all of that. I, I think uh, we had different attitudes towards the game. We came in as favourites even in our own eyes and I think that's a big mistake every time you play Real Madrid in a big European Cup final. Uh, you're never the favourite. Yep, sorry for the salt in the wound of having to go over that and, and, and any defeat is worse if you think that not just yourself but your teammates haven't really competed at the maximum that's always the sorest it's always the sorest again our sponsors are with us all the time thank you Beth365 um, you're now working as assistant manager at Hammerby you, 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 you cavalierly um, left us behind at La Liga Television we've never been the same since and, and sadly that's a fact you are now working as assistant manager at Hammerby, which gives you an even better standpoint to tell us which of all your managers either um, inspired you the most or helped you the most, or you now look back and think, although you take something from everybody, I take most from that guy. I've been lucky to have quite a few managers I really Enjoyed, respect, and very, very knowledgeable. I think uh, one who stands out is the one who brought us to success in, in Valencia. You spoke about him, Claudio uh, Ranieri, who I think uh, 
in England had a little bit of an unfair reputation until he won the league with Leicester. I'm very happy for him. Very good tactician. Defensive-minded coach, but then again, excuse him, he's Italian, so what do you expect? But then again, Walter, Walter, you know, Walter Smith, Rangers, uh, first and foremost, fantastic man, fantastic person, interested in you as a human being, as a person, not only your football skills. Uh, hopefully, uh, you have to ask my players, uh, but I try to have the same approach as Walter towards my players, uh, not being one of of the guys, but try to be interested and positive. That, that, that's uh, that's one uh, of the guys I appreciate the most. Uh, Mick McCarthy, thoroughly good man as well. Uh, he's had a long career in football, old school in one sense, but uh, still young enough to be interested in developing the play, developing your players, still young enough to be interested in your players. Uh, so I, I've, I've been lucky. I've had a few really good ones, I must say. Prandelli I had in Italy, went on to have a great success with the Italian national team, got sacked after seven games in Venezia. Without um, asking you to... to be anything stupid and dictate to Henrik. Henrik's back in this city now. And, um, you know, as a player, I, I don't know any player who was there as brief a time and began to have to impact as a substitute who was then literally adored. You're used to seeing Henke adored for Sweden, for the clubs that he scored for and coached at Manchester United too. But at Barcelona, at Celtic, it's... If you could encapsulate the same love that Celtic fans have for Henrik and say that over a smaller time it felt the same at Barcelona, his impact was literally extraordinary. Now he's back having to help Ron Koeman coach Ansu Fati, who is very new, but his talent is phenomenal. It needs to be guided and moulded. He's back having to help Ron Koeman deal with Leo Messi. What do you think um, Henrik brings to this situation at Football Club Barcelona? Because he had a relatively hard time as a coach back in Sweden, not reflecting on him necessarily, but it didn't go the way he wanted. Yeah, I think that's more due to the circumstances in the clubs he, he managed in, in Sweden than uh, his own knowledge of football, I think. Yeah, I think, uh, first and foremost, I'm very happy and proud because I'm a Swede after all, and he's a friend of mine, uh, that we that we have a guy who's actually part of the managing team in, in Barcelona and working. I, I'm, I still have, haven't fully understood what his exact role is in Barcelona, what's it going to be, but uh, I know Ronald uh, Koeman uh, trusts him and to work with young guys, uh, especially strikers at the... I think he'll be the perfect uh, match. Uh, he's been there, he's done it as a player. Uh, oh no, I'm, I'm really happy for him. A little bit jealous as well. Would I be right in saying that because Henrik, I mean, his passion, his explosiveness was all in his private life or in training, he's a very, he can put on a very cold clinical head and he also has a very reserved, careful manner. 
uh, because he assesses and thinks. But bringing, not just Barcelona, bringing a man like that with his experience, but also his pretty cold, balanced, clinical head into quite an explosive situation, that should be a help to the people around him, that he isn't going to get swayed by all the nonsense that goes on around him, I think. That's uh, probably why they hired him. I think they need a, a cool guy in Barcelona. Where, I mean, we all know what's uh, what happened last year. Uh, results haven't been there. Uh, it's been a turbulent season, and uh, I think he might be one of the guys to calm it down a little bit and get it moving forward again. Because uh, I think not only Barcelona needs it. I think. Uh, Spanish football, to be honest, need, needs it as well. Uh, need a club like Barcelona to to perform better than they, than they did last season. It's a good point. The last one is, you're, you're outside club time at the moment, so the deal that you made with your boy means that you're his dad now. So when I ask you to describe Carla a little bit, honestly, what kind of footballer he is, what kind of aspirations you have for him, how he's doing generally now, generally, broadly, for Hammerby. Take some dad pride and tell us a little bit about one of your boys who's got the, the highest profile now and he's got your sense of humour because I seem to remember he scored a goal a couple of weeks ago and made some comment about your goal-scoring record. So, like father, like son. I always had the opinion that... Records are there to be broken, right? Even the even the ones who seem unbeatable. <laughs> One goal. <laughs> no, he's he, he's doing well. He's doing really well. He's had a tough couple of years. Uh, he did his ACL, had an operation, yeah. and then when he had uh, his operation, had a fracture in his kneecap. Uh, he's been training really hard, really, really hard. Uh, and this year he's got the opportunity to play and he's performed well. Big, strong guy. He's uh, bigger than me. Probably stronger than me as well. Good going into duels. Uh, if you compare him to his dad, you could see that he is raised in Spanish football with the ball. Yeah, let's put it that way. Yeah. Then the image I want to leave our, our listeners with is... Um of the bemused Spanish residents in your Valencia um, apartment complex when they heard shouts of, What's that? as you tuned into the cricket. Sign off by telling people what the hell it is that you love so much about cricket. I, I got stuck. Uh, I watched it the first time in we went with Sweden to Australia uh, on a, like a pre-season tour. 92, early 92 in January. Watched a bit of cricket with Patrick at the hotel room. We didn't understand a thing about it, but we, we, we thought it uh, looks good. Big crowd was uh, MCG. Uh, it might even have been Boxing Day. Uh, ashes. Yeah, yeah. D-test. And then I moved to Scotland uh, and then you can see it on Sky. And I think what what got me hitched is not the game per se, but it's the commentating. I think uh, Sky's done really well. They've brought a lot of uh, old players, really good players, funny, witty. And, and that's, why, that's why I started to like it. And now it's me and my youngest son, William, who's uh, keeping flair up here in... in uh, in Sweden, it's not much cricket around here. 
I can give you an all-time cricket 11 as well, as you, if you want. This is Jockey's 11. And I'm only talking about players I've seen playing. Want three fast bowlers, right? I'll have Glenn McGraw, easy enough. Kirtley, Ambrose, a bit of flair, and Wasim. Then we need an all-rounder, and now I take Jock Callis. Out of the ones I've seen batting and bowling, uh, probably the best, and I haven't seen Beefy played, so if you've got any English watchers, we will make an excuse for that, right? Jack Callis uh, as the all-rounder. No, we need a spinner. Uh, it has to be Shane Warne. Another Australian, wicketkeeper, I'd say Adam Gilchrist. He, he can open uh, batting as well. Five batsmen to pick. Um, Sachin needs to be there, for sure. I think we need to have Ricky Ponting. We have to pick one English player as well. Alistair Cook. Uh, no thrills, but a uh, really good batsman, right? Leaves us with two more. And now it's getting difficult, right? Brian Lara. One left. Must be another West Indian. I'd say Chris Gale. Not on Mary. I, li- I just like to watch him. Uh, like to uh, yeah. see him bat. Yeah. Listen, man. Um, that was an, a massive pleasure. Um, I both hope that you are back here soon. And for your sake, that you're never back here. Um, that you're either managing Sweden to a World Cup win or perhaps president of the first ever one-day World Cup winning Sweden cricket side, one or the other. And if neither of those happens, come back here and enjoy yourselves with us, because we still have a good time over here. I will sooner or later. That's a promise. Mr Joachim Bjorklund, Swedish football legend, um, international set symbol, well-known drinker. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.